Amen. Well, thank you for that. Welcome. So glad to see more of you back every week. It's fabulous. Welcome back. We're so glad you're here. If you'd like to open your Bibles with me, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that is after you stand up. Uh, let's stand up all together here. I know you just sat down, but if you're able, go ahead and stand back up. Now, let's turn around and let's look up there in the booth and say thank you to those guys up there in the booth because, boy, they have done the work. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for that. All right. And, uh, you know, we did that especially for those of you who are on the live stream um, and, and depend on them every week. I know you'd stand up with us and thank them if you could. Um, we're, glad you're, we're glad you're still tuning in with us through, through that means. Hey, hey, how, how are your motivation levels doing? Are, are, you, are you pretty motivated for life? How, how's that going? When I think of motivation levels, you know, part, part of it is, you, in order to be motivated, you have to believe something is true. And there might be part of us, you know, after, after we've been through the Lamentations series, um, and I don't know how many of you joined us uh, for that on the live stream, or those of you that are here, it sounds like, sounds like, a, sounds like there's a lot of us that did, and, and some of you might be going, but I don't, I just, I'm still not convinced it's true. I'm still not convinced it isn't fake news. And I want to talk to you about that today. I want to talk to you about whether or not it's true whether or not it's fake news. I want to talk to you about your motivation levels to serve. I want to talk to you about whether or not you're motivated to go all in and dive in and abound in good works. I want to talk to you about your motivation levels to be connected. Your motivation levels to not be isolated but be intertwined. In the church body, I, I'd like to talk to you about motivation because this is really what the Apostle Paul was talking to the church in Corinth about. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 15, I want to give you the big overview because as we sang, we believe in the resurrection and, and that is what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is about. It is, it is a 58-verse treatise on the resurrection. And so we'll be looking hard at resurrection hope and how resurrection hope motivates us. Well, you'll see. So here we are in, in chapter 15. Before I start in verse 1, I'd like to show you verse 12. Verse 12 reads, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, okay, well that's what we sing, that's what we believe, that's what they believed, that Christ rose from the dead. Here's the problem Here's what was draining motivation from them. Here's why they weren't motivated. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So because they misunderstood life after death, because they weren't getting the resurrection right, they were losing motivation for this life. Their lack of motivation 
came from bad theology. It came from misunderstanding life after death. Now, I'll show you that. Okay, so, and I have this underlined in black because it's bad. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? That leads to another verse I have underlined in black. Up there in verse 32, I'm going to read the second half, the last part of verse 32. Like, if it's true that there's no resurrection of the dead, so Paul writes, if the dead are not raised, if that's true, then he writes, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Like, might as well eat and drink and focus on pleasures right now because why not? So their bad theology drained their motivation. Their misunderstanding of what happens after death drained their motivation, okay? So you can see that this is all about motivation because if we go to the very last verse, let's go to the very last verse of 58. Verse 58, very last verse of chapter 15. I said 58 a couple times there when I shouldn't have, but you know what verse we're on now, right? Say it all out of me. 58. 58, very good. So we're on verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, this is how he sums up the whole thing. Your belief about what happens after you die, it leads to this. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's like, I want you to know this. Your labor is not in vain. How do you know that? Well, it's fueled by good theology. It's fueled by what you believe about verse 12, about the resurrection. Now, here's what's underneath that. That's what we're going to focus on today. We're, we're going to focus more on that good theology that leads to good motivation. We're going to focus on that for the next three weeks leading up to Easter. On Easter, we're going to finish chapter 15. Today, we're going to look at what's underneath the belief that we will rise from the dead. Okay, so here we are in chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, if you circle in your Bible, you might circle that. Remember, that's how he ends it in verse 58 as well. Therefore, my beloved brothers, he wants them to remember their brothers. And we'll talk about that um, more later on as we go. I want to remind you of the gospel. Okay, that's the Greek word for gospel. You can see up there the squiggly lines. Um, that's the Greek word for gospel. That I can you see the relationship between the verb that I preach to you and the noun of the gospel? I tried to make it obvious by making them different, just making the endings, the word endings, different colors. Can you see the relationship? He's like, I want to remind you of the gospel, noun, that I gospeled you, that I preached to you. I want to remind you of the message, the good news. Gospel is not a type of music in this definition as we read it. In, I mean, that's a fine name for music, but that's not what we're talking about here. Here, when we say gospel, we mean good news. We mean proclamation, content of the good proclamation. So he says, I want to remind you. Now look, 
This is going to be the fuel. This is going to be the motivation. This is going to be what helps them. He says, this is the solution to your lack of motivation. I want to remind you of the gospel that I proclaimed to you, or that I preached to you, or that I gospeled you with. Which, I, which you received, like, okay, you didn't reject it, you, you, you received it, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, now it gets, it gets uncomfortable. If, oh, I don't like ifs when it comes to salvation. If you hold fast to the word I gospeled to you, the word I proclaim to you, to the good news that I gave you. Unless, ooh, I don't like that. Unless you believed in vain. Oh, it's so uncomfortable. But here's, I'm just, instead of, okay, here's the really big picture. Paul was afraid that because they were losing motivation, like there's a hole in the tank and motivation is draining out because they're believing the wrong thing, he's afraid that they will do what Jesus warned about, and that is to fall away. He does not want them to fall away. He does not want them to lose their faith. He wants them to hold fast. He wants them, in verse 58, to stand fast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that their labor in the Lord is not in vain. And this, this is his development of good theology that will motivate them to hold fast. And my goal for this series is that it motivates us to hold fast. That it motivates us to always abound in the work of the Lord. Because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So as you think about your motivation levels. What do you hope, what do you hope this series addresses for you, motivates you to stop doing or start doing. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit works as on that as we go. So here we are in verse 3. For I delivered to you, okay, so here's, here's the gospel that he has been preaching to them. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I made up. Is that what it says? What does it say? What I also received. What does that mean? Who did Paul receive it from? Yeah, I think. What do you think, Asher? Jesus. I, that's what I think, too. He received it from the resurrected Christ himself. Paul says, I delivered to you. This is the thing that you have to have. This is what will put fuel in your tank. This is what will keep you going. This is first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Why did Christ die? For our sins, to pay for our sins. 
to take our place. He died for our sins. This is what you have to have. This is of first importance. Whatever else we might disagree on, we have to agree on this, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. Every last one of our sins. The big sins in your mind that are too big and the little sins in your mind that don't matter. Jesus died for our sins. That he was buried. He really did die. They didn't steal his body. He was buried and bodily rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. That is the gospel. And it all hinges on the authority of Scripture. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Which twelve? Twelve disciples, right? And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time. And what Paul is saying is, travel is relatively safe, relatively achievable. Go check. There are witnesses. There are a lot of witnesses. 500 folks cannot lie about the same thing in the same way. Go check. Talk to the eyewitnesses. Because most of them are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, almost certainly Jesus' little brother, who was an unbeliever until the resurrected Christ met him, similar to Paul. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay, so what is their motivation that will help them hold fast? What is the, your motivation that will help you hold fast? It is, it is the gospel. It is nothing less than the message itself. If you don't have the gospel, you don't have anything else. So... So, um, my wife and I are watching a 26-hour documentary. 26 hours. How many of you are interested in a 26-hour documentary? Yeah, I see one hand up there. Very good. I like you even better now, Josh. Uh, it, it, gets, it gets even better than that. Okay? It, this documentary was uh, finalized in 1973. And, and every introduction to the documentary shows um, this picture up here, the world at war, and the flames are like animated. And it is, well, it's hard for my sons to watch. <laughs> 26 hours, uh, all on World War II. And in my opinion, a better documentary on World War II cannot be made. It cannot be made. You know why? Because this is only 28 years after the end of World War II, and so they interview eyewitness after eyewitness 
after eyewitness. I, I had read recently a biography of Winston Churchill, and they talk a lot about Colville, his secretary. I probably mispronounced his name, but as his personal secretary. And then they actually interviewed him on that uh, documentary. And I was like, ah, I know that guy, Cheyenne, I know that guy. You know, uh, not a nerd, not a nerd. <laughs> but, but here's the point, like this documentary is so awesome because they actually interview people that were there. You know, they interview this lady that was maybe in her, in her 30s when Stalingrad was surrounded and starving by the Germans. And now she's in her, in her 70s and she can talk about what it was like when Stalingrad was, was being surrounded and they were being starved and eating sawdust and, and all this terrible stuff that happened. It's the eyewitnesses. Okay, so, so I wanna, I'm going somewhere with this. And, and that is the letter to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians here, was written, and, and this is, I'm just getting this from the ESV study Bible. This is a consensus of, of scholars that really take the Bible's authority seriously. This was written during Paul's third missionary journey. And so if you, if you flip your page, if you're at 1 Corinthians 15, if you look just a page later, chapter 16, verse 8, you can see that it was written from Ephesus. So Paul writes in 16.8, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure, remember, because Brendan preached this passage from Acts when we were on the third missionary journey, and there was a riot in Ephesus. And Brendan did a really good, he showed you the picture of the stadium in Ephesus where the people were gathered. And like this was, this really took place. And the dates of this are probably AD 53. That's, those are the dates of Paul's third missionary journey, AD 53 to 55. And it was probably on the early end of that. And so we're talking since Jesus died and rose in AD 30 to 33 around there, we're talking, this is 20 to 25 years. And Paul's saying, go check. There are eyewitnesses. You can go talk to the people that were there. You can still go talk to them. This was being written while people were still alive. Who saw it? Who met Jesus? Who talked to the resurrected Christ? What I want you to see is that the gospel is motivating because it's true. If it's not true, we wouldn't be very motivated by it. It's only motivating because it's true, because there are eyewitnesses that can verify that Jesus really did rise from the dead. We're not talking about a fairy tale where there's no truth. That wouldn't motivate us very much. We're not talking about a myth that has some truth in it. That wouldn't motivate us very much. We're not even talking about a morality tale where the moral is true, but the story is made up. We're talking about truth. 
Jesus really did die for our sins and really did rise on the third day. If that's true, it motivates us. So Paul, as he's explaining this, says, it's true, and go check, because he has to lay this foundation that it's true. Wait, why does he have to do this? Why does he have to prove that Jesus really did rise from the dead? Well, remember verse 12? Remember we read that earlier? Because some of them are saying that there's no resurrection from the dead. And they can, if, if that's true, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead, is what Paul's point would be. So he's laying the foundation for a later argument, okay? So here we go, as Paul talks about how this truth applies to him. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He's like, I know what I did, and I know what I was, but boy, is there glory in this. There is so much glory up there in the screen and down in your Bible, because Paul, like you, had a past tense. I persecuted. It's something I used to do that I'm not doing anymore. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is what Paul can say. It's like, it's not that I was smarter than everybody else and figured it out, or that I was more moral than everybody else and figured it out, and I worked harder. He's saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. All God's grace coming my way. And his grace towards me was not in vain. You know, Paul had warned them, unless you believe in vain. Remember that from verse 2? Unless you believe in vain. But it's not in vain because God's grace is never in vain. He says, his grace towards me was not in vain. It worked in my life. It gave me a past tense. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul's talking, of course, about his motivation. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Or that is with me. Like, with me as my partner. The grace of God is working alongside me. It's working in me. I depend on it when I'm out of strength. God gives me his grace. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the gospel is true and the gospel works. And Paul is holding up himself as exhibit A that the gospel works. And he says, look, you guys know my past. You know that I was a persecutor of the church and now I am being persecuted for the gospel. That's what he says uh, in verse Thirty-two. What gain? What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beasts at Ephesus? Like, remember Brendan's sermon about how there was a riot and Paul was persecuted. He's like, "What did I gain by that? What did I gain if there's not a resurrection? 
He's like, I was a persecutor, now I'm persecuted. I was opposed to the gospel, now I am a proponent of the gospel. I was against the gospel, now I'm for the gospel. Why? Because the gospel had changed his life. So we can say, by the grace of God that comes through the gospel. So Paul will write to the church in Rome that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That good news is God's power coming to us that saves us and changes us. And he says, it works. He says, I was struck blind. So I could see that I was spiritually blind. And then he opened my eyes as I gained spiritual sight. He says, I was dead in my sins. I had no spiritual pulse. I was dead, dead, dead. And God made me alive. He says, I was a slave to sin. I couldn't help but sin. I did nothing but sin all day long. Even my good works we're sin because they were done out of pride, and I'm better than you, pride. And he's saying, but now I am set free to serve Christ. The gospel is fuel because the gospel is true, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because the gospel is grace that works in our lives. gospel is not a fad it's not a fad it's not a it's not a this week's diet type thing the gospel has been changing lives for 2,000 years sometimes in the evening I watch a little TV and on on the commercials right now um, is and the shows that I watch anyway, maybe, maybe you never see these, though, is uh, Billy, is it Billy Blanks? Yeah, Sarah's nodding at me. Yes, Melanie's not. He's the old Taibo guy, or Taibo, or how do you say that? You know, it's the old kickboxing exercising program, and now it's kind of a, I remember when that was a thing. It was a big thing. Some of you are nodding. Some of you are like, dude, you are old. The gospel is not a fad. It's not going away with the wind. The gospel is true and the gospel works. And one more, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Where did that come from, I or they? Where did that come from? What is he talking about? Well, let's go back. Let's go back all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I would love, I would love to just spend a whole bunch of time in chapter 1, um, especially 1 through 9. I, there's, there's so much good news. It's so rich. But I got I to gotta jump to 110 like we have on the screen there. And so Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers... Well, that's, that, he calls them that a lot, doesn't he? I appeal to you, brothers, and of course, there's a footnote in the ESV, it's brothers or sisters, and you probably have, may, you might have in your Bible, brothers or sisters, brothers and sisters, and, and the word brothers there means brothers and sisters, it includes everybody. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Okay, so then he goes on to explain what all the fighting is about. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of fighting. Really, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 4, or 4, I'm sorry, 1, 10 through, all the way through chapter 4 is, is about them fighting over who has the biggest and the best pile of status. It's because some of them are like, look, I follow Apollos. I'm of Apollos. And some of them are like, oh yeah? Oh, I'm one better than you. I follow Paul. So if you have this much status, I have this much status. And some of them are like, look, I'm better than all y'all because I follow Christ. And they're all like arguing and toggling and figuring out who can have the biggest pile of Christian status. You've never been to a church like that. Have you? I mean, that wouldn't happen in church world, would it? That we would fight over status? I get the sense that the church in Corinth would be an interesting church to attend if you could watch it uh, from a distance, but it would be an extremely stressful church to attend if you had to actually participate in it. So if you're with me, like I'm just going to walk you through the book real quick. Let's go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, there's kids in the audience, so I'm not going to explain exactly what's going on. In chapter 5, I'm just going to tell you that it gave the pagans shivers when they heard about it. Pagans don't get shivers, but it freaked the pagans out. They're like, that is weird and screwed up. And the church is like, yeah, we're kind of proud of it. Look how free we are in Christ. Messed up. Messed up. But there's never sin in the church, is there? There's sin in this church. And so go to six. There's people in the church suing each other. Well, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Somebody on this side is suing someone on that side, and someone on this side is counter-suing somebody on this side. There never fights in the church, are there? You're like, so where can I go to this Corinthian church? I mean, I just like to, like, it was, it was messed up. I think Brendan called it a dumpster fire. <laughs> Turn with me to chapter 7. You know, in chapter 7, you find out that marriages, again, I'm going to use a discretion here, marriages were cold. Very, very cold. And crumbling. Then in chapters 8 through 10, I'm lumping a whole bunch of stuff together right now. Chapters 8 through 10, they're fighting over cultural issues. <laughs> That'd be weird. <laughs> then in the second half of chapter 11, I guess I'd put um, head coverings in with cultural issues. Then in the second half of chapter 11... People are actually getting out of the Lord's. I mean, getting left out of the Lord's Supper. I mean, there's there's people that come from working all day, and but the rich people got there early, and the rich people ate rich people food and enjoyed the fellowship, and now the poor people show up, and there's nothing left, and people are being left out of the Lord's Supper, 
And Paul says this is embarrassing and wrong, and how can you mess up communion this bad? It's messed up. Then, in chapters 12 through 14, they're having talent shows for worship services where everyone's trying to show off how awesome their spiritual gifts are. I get the sense that people were, it was hard to go to the church of Corinth. It was hard. So what keeps them together? What's the motivation that keeps them returning to the koinonia or the fellowship to the believers' friendships week after week after week? What keeps them going to each other's homes for meals? Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. What do they preach? The gospel. And so you believe. What keeps them together? The gospel keeps them together, and the gospel unites them. This is what we have in common. We're all sinners. And Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. And we all need to receive that and stand on that and hold fast to that. This is what makes us brothers. This is what unites us. One of the pictures that Paul uses a lot in this letter to the Corinthian church is that of the body. And how we're all members of one body. And each member has a different function. We're all part of the same group, in other words. And we all have different skills. We all have different gifts. We all help out in different ways. But we're one because we all had the same problem. We all got saved the same way through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And believing that and holding fast to that. We all have the same problem. We all have the same solution. We're all in the same body. And that is in Christ. And so let me, just, let me just ask you. Are you living out the truth of that? Are you living out the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm reading a lot about how people feel more isolated than they ever have before in history. In part, because they settle for fake community. Are you settling for fake community? I'm just inviting you to think of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and use that motivation to move towards each other in love. I don't, I don't know the right way to program this. And I don't know if a program will do it. Because programs aren't fuel. I think what it needs to be is it needs to be you deciding to be in community with each other. And you to pursue spiritual friendships with each other. Because after all, we're family.
let the gospel fuel you to do what Paul says as he closes out the chapter 15. As he closes it out, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers. Man, live the truth of that. Live the truth of that. Can you say, I have beloved brothers and sisters in Christ here? If you can't, please move towards someone in love. And look around at each other and move towards them in love. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Like, I don't think that COVID means we can't do anything for Jesus. I don't think we have to always do the same things for Jesus. Maybe you shouldn't do the same things you were doing a year ago for Jesus or two years ago for Jesus. Maybe not. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. Do something for Jesus. I'm afraid that we've gotten into maybe some isolating habits. The fuel for breaking those habits is the resurrection. And we'll talk more about that over the next couple weeks. But for right now, Maybe think, maybe think about, okay, how could I move back into community and how can I serve God by serving people? I'm just going to throw out a challenge. I've been going back and forth by whether or not to challenge you with this because it might be too bracing. But I'm just going to do it because I think you can handle it. I'd invite you to try to have, to pray about having, three spiritual conversations with three, maybe the same person, maybe three different people between now and Easter. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because, because this is true. So this is what Paul says to the church. You've already received this as true. He says that in verse 1. This is the gospel I preached to you that you received. Well, have you received it? Have you received it? If not, receive this as true. Receive this as your salvation. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and the truth of it, and the fact that it works, and the, the fact that you use it to save people from their sins. Lord, help us live the truth of that. Motivate us for what we can do and we should do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.